Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hello listeners, welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over the Latin Trinity, logic and scripture. So, as we've gone over in the past little bit, we kind of, you know, went over an Old Testament view which informed the time of Jesus and then the New Testament writers that wrote about Jesus. And then we kind of fast forwarded to almost 100 years after Christ, which was when scholars believed that the Gospel of John was likely written. And in the ensuing hundreds of years, as is fairly well known, uh, Christianity continued to grow and form, and eventually there were very famous gatherings where people tried to come and understand who this Jesus character was. They're like, well, you had some Arians who believed that Jesus was, or what was Arianism? He was divine, but he was a creature. He was unlike God in the sense that he was created, whereas God was uncreated. And so the Arians believe that Jesus came into existence at some time because, like any son, that means generation, and generation means they come into existence. And hey, it makes sense, but that was declared heresy at some point, or not less, just not a, a view that people were going with. And so over time, things changed, but we had to understand, as you know, we've talked about this a lot too, but like, how can a being be both human? and a god at the same time, and then people are like, well, if he wasn't fully human, then he didn't really have a human experience, and they're like, well, if he wasn't fully god, then he wasn't really god, and so they're like, okay, well, let's try to figure out that, and also, well, they had to come to an idea of what the relationship between god and his father were, because as we've gone over, and as you probably know, based on just interactions with other Christians, that most of them believe some form of probably what's called modalism, which we'll talk about a lot, but is actually declared a heresy where basically God is one being manifest in three different ways. And so there's lots of formulations we're going to go over to how people try to avoid that heresy or avoid that idea, as well as trying to avoid there actually being more than one God, because, you know, there's a lot of scriptures that say there's one God, and so they're like, well, we can't have all these gods, but we have to have Jesus and a Father, so how do we make sense of this? Also, I guess, before we dive into this, we start adding the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost here. Briefly, why hasn't that come up thus far in our studies, and with your understanding, what was kind of the development to the Holy Spirit so that he was now included in the Godhead? The Holy Spirit was recognized as a separate divine being largely based upon the Paracletos sections in the Gospel of John. And very early on in the writings, the Holy Ghost is, or the Spirit, is recognized variously as a third divine being. We see, for instance, in the Ascension of Isaiah, where Christ is like the Father. He's fully divine. And the Holy Spirit is called the greatest of all the angels. But there is a clear demarcation of worship so that when they get to the seventh heaven, the Holy Spirit is there and he's told to worship this one, referring to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the highest of the angels worthy of worship. The Son is worthy of worship and the Father is worthy of worship. And it is really the worthiness to be worshipped that defines a being that is fully God. I mean, there's a very developed tritheism, if you will, in this Ascension of Isaiah, probably written about 100 A.D. 
which probably reflects the coalescence of the earliest Christian community beliefs. We see the same kind of things in the Odes of Solomon, written probably about 190 to 120 AD, where the Holy Spirit is recognized as a, as a divine being. So it, it just assumed, basically, that there's a third divine being. His status is never really clarified, and the Holy Spirit kind of vacillates between just being an expression of God and what God does and being a distinct divine person who's one of the highest angels who then is simply recognized as a divine being. Whatever problems you have, Recognizing Jesus as divine arise also for the Holy Spirit. But then in, in the later councils, the question becomes, well, okay. And this really is the theological controversy. Does the Holy Spirit just proceed from the Father, or is the procession from both the Father and the Son? And so they argued over that. And the argument I don't think was ever really fully resolved, but I think the majority position is and always has been that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son and unites them as one God, and so the Holy Spirit is a distinct divine person. Now, Paracletos means like a defending attorney, if you will, and somebody who is an, who intercedes on your behalf. And so when we're talking about the Paracletos in John primarily 14 through 17, and it has to be recognized that the Holy Spirit, um, the Paracletos in John, is called He in a royal way. And gives the Holy Spirit very distinct personal terms as a distinct being. And so that's kind of the history of the belief and the way that the belief developed and kind of the controversies that surrounded the Holy Spirit. Okay. And yeah, this chapter doesn't even necessarily focus on that. I just wanted to bring that in just because we hadn't really talked about that yet. So rather than having just abruptly, hey, look, now there's three. We were having problems with two. Now there's three. So now we have the background. But anyway, this chapter is going to focus on mainly the relationship between the Father and the Son, like we've been talking about, through different lenses. And now we're going to take a look at specifically the creedal formulations and kind of the Latin and Greek traditions of Trinity. So here are some quotes. We kind of go over at the beginning that a lot of evangelical-type faiths at one point, I don't know if they've backed off some, some have, maybe not, said, you know, you Mormons aren't Christian, and one of the main reasons is because you have a, a misunderstanding of the Trinity and the Godhead. And you go over how that's kind of an irony, just because the ability to elucidate a intelligible doctrine of Trinity, you say, that doesn't commit heresy, if it's a condition for salvation, then the number of people that will be saved is pretty small, just because most people, as we've talked about before as well, can't coherently come up with what that actually means. And it might not be their fault, because it, as we're going to kind of go over, it's a little bit incoherent just on its face. And this is kind of something that I know, at least in the media, when there's people that are atheists or something, this is one of the main things they kind of make fun of Christians for, is like, oh, okay, so you got one, two, three gods, but they're one god. That's weird, because I just counted three, but you're saying one. And, and even Joseph Smith pointed this out. It's like, you know, wow, that that's a kind of a confusing idea. And so, hotly contested topic for many hundreds of years. So, let's dive into some of it. So, you say, the scriptural and logical problems associated with the Trinity have received almost unprecedented attention in the past decade, which I guess would be, that was 2008 when you, this book came out. So, you say, I believe that it is fair to conclude that the best efforts of the best minds for about 1,500 years have failed to deliver a coherent and intelligible doctrine of the Trinity that comes anywhere close to meshing with the scriptural assertions 
about the relation of the divine persons. Don't remember if it's here or in a minute, but basically, like I said, you you say that most of the formulations, if you bring them to their logical conclusion, eventually commit the heresy of modalism, which people, you know, they want to stay away from, at least those that believe modalism is a heresy, and then, or it's tritheism, meaning there's literally three separate gods, and they don't want to go there either. Because there can only be one God by definition, especially if you're coming from creation ex nihilo type stuff. Anyway, so the problem here, I'll form it and then I want you to go over these issues. So here's the logical problem of Trinity in a syllogism form. We have premise one. The one true God is exactly one divine individual, which is Yahweh. Second premise, the Father is God. Third, the Son is God. Fourth, the Son is not identical to the Father. So, you bring up several issues in this section with just that formulation alone before we even talk about actual creeds, so if you could just kind of sum up what the logical problems are to begin with, other than, I mean, you can go into what's fairly glaringly obvious that they're not the same, though that's weird because you just said that they were. This is a logically inconsistent tetrad. In, the, in other words, acceptance of any three of these propositions entails the logical denial of the fourth, and yet all four propositions that Christians were clearly committed to. So if you accept that the Father is God and the Son is God and that there's only one God, you accept Sabellianism or modalism. The Father and the Son have to be the same person or identical. If you accept that the Father is God but the Son isn't God, then you reject Jesus as being divine. The Jews did that, but that's a form of Arianism, and at least that's what the more traditional Christians have argued. If you accept that the Son is God, and that there's only one God, and that the Son is not identical to the Father, then you have to deny that the Father is God. And as strange as it seems, there were Gnostics during the first and second century that viewed the God of the Old Testament as not truly God, because that God was evil, the kind of things that God did are just not acceptable. But the loving God expressed in Jesus is the true God. And so you had Christian Gnostics who essentially rejected the divinity or reality of the Father. And so the point is, is that the acceptance of any three logically entails the denial of the fourth, and yet traditional Christianity very clearly wants to accept all four propositions as bedrock doctrine that can't be rejected. Now, what I actually said, you have to recognize, I was kind of responding to Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict the 16th. He was the I think the title is the Prefect of Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith in the Catholic Church. And he had that post up to 2005 when he became Pope. He actually had made an official decision by the Catholic Church that Mormons are not Christian because they don't accept the Catholic formulation of the Trinity. And I'm kind of responding to that when I say that I'm not trying to hide a thinly veiled contempt for that kind of a view. Rather, I'm expressing my absolute outrage at that kind of a position for the nonsense that it is. I have absolutely nothing but contempt for a person who would make that kind of a claim, because most people just don't have the intellectual acumen to express an outright contradiction intelligibly. And so, you know, if you're going to impose on someone the duty of expressing or accepting the Trinity, I mean, a person has to be able to understand something in order to be able to believe it. I mean, otherwise, it's like saying, I believe in the great cotton candy. I have no idea what that is, but I believe it anyway, even though it's an unintelligible formula to say the cotton candy is a person. Now, obviously, those are nonsensical kinds of statements, but 
when we're talking about a position that requires us to reject at least, you know, something that is just deemed to be bedrock because of logical principles. And look, Christians have been all over the map on trying to decide who and what the Trinity is and how it works. And so suggesting that somebody is not a true Christian unless they can both accept and elucidate a coherent doctrine of the Trinity is suggesting that everybody who recognizes this logical contradiction for what it is isn't a Christian. You know, if that's what you've got to do to be a Christian, Jesus never did it. He never accepted the Trinity, and so I guess he's not a Christian, and I'm happy to be in his company. All right, then the first section here, we dive right into the creedal formulation and its problems. So, again, I mean, I assume most people know that there's different creeds, which is a written document that was, at least as far as I understand, kind of at different councils, people with different viewpoints came together and they're like, we got to come up with something that's official. And so debates go back and forth sometimes for days. And then in the end, they end up with this. So I think you have to have a great deal of respect for what they're doing They're They recognize that there's a big problem and they're saying, well, look, Let's bring our best scholars together to see if we can't come up with something that's workable as a solution. I mean, I have nothing but respect for that kind of thing. And so, you know, a lot of people disdain the councils because it's not a prophet receiving revelation, and it definitely is not. But Christians believe that these councils were guided by the Holy Spirit. And so what I call is second-class revelation. You know, these, these people were led by the Spirit, and they must have been inspired, but it's not really a revelation. It's just a formulation. And there are a lot of Christian churches that don't accept, for instance, the Council of Nicaea's resolution of the Arian controversy. And so, you know, we have to be careful in recognizing that I think these people operated in, in good faith to try to do the best they could to resolve what they recognized was a very difficult logical problem to work through. And so that's what they're really working with. Now, having said that, they were also different political parties and different factions that at times warred with each other. The Arians didn't like the Constantinople Christians, and they battled. They actually took up arms against each other from time to time. And they, you know, the Arians persecuted the Christians and vice versa. Right. And then I'm going to read this and then talk about this. So it says, it's easy to miss just how little is actually resolved by the various creeds and the range of possible options that they leave open. It seems to me that the creeds resolve very little because they are so vague. So I'm going to read a little bit from the creedal formulation or from the creed from the Council of Nicaea. But I guess I can relate sort of to this where I work in advertising. We deal with clients and sometimes decisions are made by clients, but clients aren't just one person. They kind of make a decision by committee. And sometimes trying to please completely opposite ends of the spectrum of ideas to meet in the middle, which is usually good. Hey, it's a compromise. But by then the ideas are so far from like their actual strongest form that now they're just muddied and they are meaningless almost. And so I'm not saying this is completely meaningless, but I can see where that kind of, you know, decision by committee can sometimes lead to problems. So let me read a little bit. This is very famous, so you've probably heard this before, but it says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth who, because of us men and because of our salvation, came down and became incarnate, becoming man, suffered and rose again on the third day, 
ascended to the heavens, and will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit. So, you just point out right off that the assertion that the Father and the Son are of the same substance really settles nothing. You say, first, the New Testament clearly identifies the one true God with the Father alone, and not with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. The New Testament never uses the word God as a designator of three divine persons together, or refers to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost as one God. So, right off the bat, we have problems with meshing this idea with Scripture. Moreover, notice what the Nisaean Council declared. We believe in one God. That one God is the Father, and in one Lord. And so they don't use the word God for Jesus. They just say that he's from the same substance of the Father. And so what they're doing here, this is kind of a take on the statement in 1 Corinthians that there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's setting that up from the statement by Paul. So I always get a kick because the, the one God is not the Trinity. It's amazing to me because when I talk with Christians, that they always use God to refer to the three divine persons as a whole. Mormons will often use God to refer to the Father or to one of the divine beings individually. And so we're just talking past each other. What's true of the Trinity as a whole is certainly not true of the divine persons individually. For instance, the Trinity as a whole did not send the Son to suffer and, and die. That was done by the Father, according to the Gospel of John. The Trinity as a whole did not become born of a virgin and die on a cross. That was done by the Son, not by the Trinity as a whole. So we have to be careful because assertions that are made of the Trinity as a whole that are true will not be true of the individual divine persons and vice versa. And so when, we, when we're talking to people in the tradition and they're using God to refer to the Trinity and we're referring to one of the divine persons, obviously we're going to have a conflict because we're not talking about the same thing at all. But I also want to point out, Nisaya is saying that the one God is the Almighty Father. And so, you know, the recognition is if you say, who does the Council of Nicaea say is the one God? It's not the Trinity that it says is the one God. It's the Father that it says is the one God. And so, you know, it's just kind of something I think that needs to be pointed out because people, when they read this, they're just blind as to what they're actually seeing because they think it means something that it doesn't say. All right, good. I mean, you go over several things in the chapter, but I kind of zoomed in on the key issue of being of one substance because that seems to be where the most controversy is as far as making it coherent. So you say, to say that the Father and the Son are of one substance can mean that the Son is the same individual as the Father, or it could mean that they share the same essential properties of the kind divine. For example, persons are instances of substances in Aristotelian thought. So, you know, maybe that's one way they're thinking about it. Thus, to say that the Father and the Son are of the same substance can be construed to mean that they are the very same individual in the same way that, say, Clark Kent and Superman are one individual. Yet Nicaea clearly did not intend to say that the Father and the Son are the same divine individual. Substance can also refer to an essence that is shared, yet sharing the same essence is too ambiguous to specify the respects in which essence is shared among the Father and the Son. For example, all humans share the properties that are essential for belonging to the natural kind Homo sapiens. Thus, they share a human essence, my dog and I share all the properties essential to belong to the kind living things. We thus share the same substance. So since it's so vague there, like you're pointing out, it can, I mean, I guess you can say that, but what does it even mean? Because, hey, we're all of the essence mammals. Okay, well, that can refer to a lot of things that, that you, you could have a horse in there, you know, and then a human. 
Yeah, and, and what's interesting is on one construal of essence, it entails multiple divine beings and therefore a form of polytheism. And on the other, it entails another heresy, modalism, that, that the Father and the Son are the same being, the same essentially divine person. And so depending on how you look at substance, but either way of looking at substance, you still come up with a heresy. And so on either side of the traditional view, you have heresies and the middle way, which they can't claim to adopt. It's just a logical mess because it asserts what it denies. And then first off, I guess, let's, if you could, a lot of the formulations or a lot of attempts to make sense of this by later scholars and such, you say they eventually commit mostly modalism, which again is the same being in different modes like Clark Kent or Superman. You know, they're the same person doing a different thing or like I am one Corey, but sometimes I am a father Corey. I'm also a son to you, Corey. I'm also a employee Corey. And there's, you know, that's three modes of the same Corey and that's modalism. So, I mean, that sounds familiar. That sounds like what a lot of people try to say about God. You bring up all the time, modalism is a heresy. Uh, who declared it a heresy and who is afraid of modalism? Because it sounds like most people are like, yeah, that's, that's how it is. Is everyone that you say, hey, that's modalism, they're going to be, oh my gosh, no, I, I can't commit the heresy of modalism because clearly that's, that's bad to me. Or is that just something for Catholics? No, uh, modalism is, was actually called Sabellianism in the Eastern Church or Patropassionism. In the Western Church, Patropassionism means that in the son's suffering, the father also suffers. It comes from Sibelius, who is a theologian and a priest from the 3rd century. He formulated this. It was very logical. I mean, there's nothing logically incoherent about modalism. It's just simply saying that the Father and the Son are two different ways of God appearing. There are modern incarnations of this kind of a doctrine. When a person says that the Father is the same being as the Son in the Trinity, which they say all the time, they use the word being, but the father of Corey is the same being as the father of Jacob, is the same being as Blake Osler. Yet there are not three individual persons involved here. There's only one person. So that's modalism, as you've already pointed out. When I talk with traditional Christians who are telling me about the Trinity, most often what they come up with is, is just a form of modalism. Modalism was recognized essentially as a heresy very, very early on, and clearly was rejected at Nicaea as well as a legitimate resolution to any of the problems. So it was rejected by the majority of the churches in favor of what I would call the substance Trinitarianism. The Athanasian Creed is probably the most important where it was rejected. It's got to be understood that modalism had a long and, and illustrious history in Christian thought. I mean, I could pull up any number of patristic fathers who, when they talk about the Father and the Son, often talk in terms of modalism. Okay, I just mean, like, if you talk to Christians today and they, they say something, and then you're like, oh, well, don't you see that that's just modalism? They would understand. They're like, oh, no, that's something I want to avoid. Or they're like, yeah, so what? Well, most traditional Christians don't know that modalism is a heresy. You have to point it out to them and say, but you've got to understand that's a heresy. Not even your church accepts it. They accept what they call substance Trinitarianism, which is a different belief. <laughs> substance Trinitarianism is the attempt to avoid modalism and the attempt to avoid polytheism with a logical contradiction. Now, let me point out something else about the solution that you say. You read the Nicene Creed. The purpose of the Nicene Creed was to place Christ in the same category by saying he's the same substance as the Father. What I believe they meant to assert was that whatever it is that makes the Father divine, the Son also is. 
so that they're the same substance in terms of their divinity. But notice when it says that he was begotten and not made. They still viewed the Son as dependent on the Father for existence, and so they simply missed the real essential ontological issue. The issue is, is Christ ontologically like the Father in, his, in the way he exists and in, in, in his being, or is he like human beings? And they want to have it both ways by saying he's begotten, not made. But what content does the word begotten have? He's a son, and he's begotten. When we're talking about a son being begotten, we all know what we're saying here, because being begotten as a son means that you come into existence by birth and dependent on the relationship with the Father. What they meant was that Christ depends on God to be what he is. But that's still an ontologically dependent relation, and the Father doesn't have those kinds of dependence relations, and the Son does which makes him ontologically distinct from the Father, which means that Nisaya did not solve the problem it set out to solve. What Nisaya did was, in words, simply kind of paint over the problem and then avoided addressing the problem head-on because they didn't have a solution. And they really didn't. And so it really doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve the problem they set out to solve. It still places Christ on the ontologically dependent side of the great ontological divide between creator and created. It doesn't really resolve what it means to say that the Father and the Son are one substance, because it could mean that both that they share the same essence, like me and my two sons, Corey and Jacob, all have the same essence of being in the same family even. But clearly that's not what they were meaning when they say that they're of the same essence. But what else did they mean? Unless that they're the very same thing, the very same being, the very same, they have uh, some kind of identity, so that they're just one when we count them. And so, in my view, Nisaya is, it's kind of a magic trick, I guess, is what I would say. So, it's trying to divert attention from what's really happening. Okay, well, that makes sense. So, I mean, you read it, lots of flowery language, some of it, like, you think makes sense, but then you go home and think about it, and you're like, wait a minute, that didn't solve anything. Now, we need to recognize there are a lot of other councils that address the issue of the Trinity and what it is. It's just that Nisaya was the first. And it's the one that, if you're a Catholic, and for, for most Protestant churches, is the one that they deem to be binding. And, you know, it's when Christians are speaking with Mormons, they're saying, well, you reject Nisei, the Nisaean formulation of the Trinity, so you're not Christian. And so it's a very prominent creedal formulation that is definitive of Christianity for millions of Christians. And yet, when we get right down to it, it, it doesn't say what they think it says, it doesn't solve what they think it resolves, and it doesn't make the sense that they think it makes. And then, yeah, it was important for Mormons early on, is in the early church, Joseph Smith made sure to point out, you know, apparently from even his first vision that these creeds are an abomination, they've been skewing people of the, you know, correct view of God. And so that's what the restoration was for, to come restore that view. Well, let me just finish out the section here real quick with another quote here. You say, The intelligible responses that presently maintain any viability can be divided into roughly two camps. The first may be called the Latin view, because it is associated with the Western branch of theology prominent in the Latin-speaking West and is represented most visibly by Augustine. It begins with the fact that God is one, a metaphysically unique and simple being, and then attempts to explain how one God can be seen as three divine persons. The other camp may be called the Greek view, because it is associated with the Eastern branch of theology prominent in the Greek-speaking East, and is most visibly associated with the Cappadocian fathers, such as some people Gregory Nazentius, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil of Athanasius. There you go. 
The Greek view begins with the assertion that there are three distinct divine persons and attempts to explain how these three are nevertheless one God. So they kind of both start from, you know, kind of the opposite end, but they still both have the same problem in the end. Anyway, in the book, you shift gears and you focus in on the Latin Trinitarianism specifically, and Jacob's going to start to talk about that. All right. So you start off by saying that the history of interpreting the doctrine of the Trinity could accurately be described as a vacillation between modalism on the one hand, which we were just discussing, and tritheism, or you know, three separate gods on the other. I believe that the classical doctrine of the Trinity does indeed suffer from either incoherence or the heresy of modalism. The Latin doctrine of the Trinity has been stated most clearly and authoritatively by Augustine. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each is God, and at the same time all are one God, and each of them is a full substance, and at the same time all are one substance. The Father is neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit, the Son is neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, but the Father is the Father uniquely, the Son is the Son uniquely, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit uniquely. Like you said, I mean, that's very confusing because on one hand it sounds like, oh, it's all one person in three different you know, manifestations. But at the, other, at the end, it's like, yeah, but wait, they're all uniquely themselves. And so try theism at the same time. And so, and I think you kind of already went over this with the, the Clark Kent Superman analogy with modalism. But you said it's like asserting that there's just one being who is Superman, Clark Kent, and the top male reporter for the Daily Planet. Just one person who appears as three different roles. Now, there's nothing incoherent or unintelligible about such a claim. But such an approach makes nonsense of the New Testament claims for the relation of the Father to the Son. Yeah, such as no one would say that the Father sent the Father, the Father sent the Son. And so the Son has a property that the Father doesn't have, and that's being sent by the Father. The Son doesn't pray to the Son, the Son prays to the Father. The Father, therefore, has a property the Son doesn't have, and that is being the object of the prayers of the Son. And the Son doesn't pray to himself. So when we start breaking down what the New Testament actually says about the divine persons, it's nonsense to say that they're just the same being in the sense that they are just one same thing identically. And that's the kind of uh, problem that I'm highlighting with the Latin Trinity. Now, when we get into it, Latin Trinitarianism is also reflected well in the writings of Augustine, and Augustine maintained that the divine persons were the relations, the, they called them relational subsistences. And so you don't look at either the Father or the Son or the Holy Ghost as being a distinct divine person. It's the relation, the Father related to the Son that is a divine person, and the Holy Spirit related to the Father that is a divine person. That just seems to be nonsensical to me. It's reifying a relation as a divine person when relations are between people and not the people themselves. It just seems to me to be a misunderstanding of what we're referring to when we refer to a divine person. All right. And um, like you were saying, the Latin Trinitarianism has them being identical to God. That, you know, that is, the Father being identical to God, the Son being identical to God, but the Father is not identical to the Son. And so the claim that the Father and the Son are numerically identical to exactly one God, but simultaneously that they are numerically distinct from one another, just doesn't seem like it can be reconciled. Well, it's, it's obviously a logical contradiction. If we say that the Father is identical to God and the Son is identical to God, from the transitive principle of, of mathematics, if A is equal to B and B equals to C, then A equals C, that means that they're just identical. And so on its face, this kind of assertion that the Father is God, the Son is God, 
but the father is not the son, it's an inconsistent triad of, of assertions. Okay. Now, we have some individuals, uh, Jeffrey Brower and uh, Michael Rea, who argue that the logic of the Trinity is much like uh, the logic of material objects, and they kind of have this a lump of clay and statue type of idea going on. You go ahead and just walk us through that a little bit, and then why it doesn't make so much sense. Yeah, so if we have a statue of Athena, the statue of Athena has properties that the lump of clay isn't, and yet the statue of Athena just is a lump of clay. And so they want to say that that when we're looking at the Trinity, we have the same constitutional problems. This is called the constitution view of identity. So Athena has properties of having arms and a head and so forth, whereas the lump of clay that she's made of doesn't have those properties, at least they would assert. And so what we come up with is the same kind of contradiction, but it's still true. It it is true that Athena is a lump of clay, uh, and the lump of clay was made into Athena. My response to that would be that, that Athena is not just a lump of clay. Athena is a particular expression of the lump of clay with particular properties that a mere lump of clay doesn't have, and so that they've just misconceived the analogy. The Constitution view of identity has never been one that's held much pull for me because it's obvious to me that a work of art is not merely a lump of clay. It's a, it's a lump of clay after it has been imbued with certain artistic properties that the mere lump of clay does not have. So. Athena is the lump of clay plus properties, and the lump of clay is something quite distinct from Athena, even though they're made of the same thing. Moreover, this kind of analogy, it may work with a kind of materialistic identity. So I am just a bunch of molecules, that's true. But it's clear that I'm also much more than just a lump of a bunch of molecules. And I can talk that way, but how do you make this analogy to non-corporeal beings who don't have any material reality about them? I can't even make the analogy work when I'm referring to non-material kinds of things that don't have a number of parts that constitute their being. So the analogy, because for both, you know, for for the scholars who have adopted this, they also believe that God is simple, meaning he has no parts. So I don't see how the analogy works for them, and it doesn't seem really to me to make logical sense of the Trinity, and I don't think it's a very good analogy for the Trinity. So the New Testament clearly shows that God and Jesus and even the Holy Spirit have distinct wills. Uh, they differ in many ways. You know, just off the top of my head, things that wouldn't make sense if they weren't, you know, the baptism of Jesus. Is Jesus like reflecting his voice off of the sky or the clouds to have the Father talking about how he's well pleased with his Son, and then the, the Holy Spirit appearing as a dove? Or the great intercessory prayer is, again, Jesus just said, you know, I'm going to go down and pray to myself, or, or Jesus talking about, you know, the comfort of the Holy Spirit that will come after he's gone. Well, I thought you were here. You're all one person. So, yeah, just yeah, a couple of My favorite would be, there. not my will, but thy will be done. Oh, oh wait, a, your will just is my will. <laughs> wait, that's my will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really screwed up there. But that brings us to the last section here, which is distinct persons and the unique identity of God. Now, Owen asserts, do we need to give any background on Owen? There was a book written by Paul Owen and others. It's the New Mormon Challenge. And so in this, Owen is taking on the LDS view of the Godhead. So he's, you know, he's writing about that and makes a number of assertions. But he's a good man. I know Paul personally. I've spent time with him. I've had lunch and dinner with him. And, and I like him. He's a good guy. But, you know, he's just a, he's a standard Christian who rejects Mormonism. So. He asserts following Baucom that the expression of Christ as the Logos is a way of including Christ within God's own unique identity. How does he get to that? 
Well, what Paul Owen, he follows Richard Baucom in his analysis saying that what is important about God is not what God is, but who God is. And what's important about who God is, is, is what God is. And that is being the uncreated creator. So remember, we've had discussions about Richard Baucom in the past and about his phraseology of the quote, the son included within the unique identity of the one God. That's, right. that's kind of his formulation. Okay. So what they do is they take 1 Corinthians 8.6, and they say that this entails that the Shema actually speaks of both the Father and Jesus being included within the unique identity of the one God, Yahweh. Now, the Shema is the reference to the daily prayer said by Jews. That's the one with the prayer box that they have that goes on the forehead. And the- right, right. It's from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay. And so they say, thus... In Paul's quite unprecedented reformulation of the Shema, the unique identity of the one God consists of the one God, the Father, and the one Lord, his Messiah, who is explicitly regarded as the Son of the Father. Well, what he's saying is we have one unique identity, and that's identified with God. And so we have the Shema that says, Behold, the Lord our God is one. They take Paul to be basically reflecting on on this Shema when he is referring to we have one God, the Father, and one Lord, His Son, Jesus Christ, as Paul asserts in 1 Corinthians 8 and 6. And they say, oh, the word Lord and the word God and the words Father and the Son all appear here, but in the Shema, the words Lord and God appear. So he must be referring to that. I think it's bad exegesis. I don't think that's what Paul is referring to. I think that Paul is actually saying the one God is the Father, because that's exactly what he says. He's not saying the one God is the Father and the Son. He's saying the one God is the Father, and we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, because Lord is the equivalent of the word Adonai, which the Jews actually stated. They didn't use the word Yahweh, but that's the divine name Yahweh, and so the the divine name Yahweh is given to Christ as an honorific title by the Father. And so what Paul's doing is continuing the longstanding and well-established Christian interpretation of Psalm 110 in recognizing that the Lord said to my Lord, where we're referring to two divine beings. And so the term Lord is used to refer to the Son as the one who receives the Father's unique divine name, not his unique divine identity. And there's a distinction. Now, you and I share a name as well. It's not unique because I got it from my father and he got it from his father and so on, but it's the name Osler. But the fact that we have the name Osler doesn't mean we have a unique identity or personal identity with one another. So what he's missing is that the identity of the Father is a personal identity. It's the identity of a being that has a unique will, a unique range of cognitive grasp, and, you know, is distinct from other beings that are, or persons that are recognized as divine persons. And so, in my view, what Owen is doing here following Richard Baucom, and, and Paul Owen's a good man, he's a good scholar, and I don't mean to denigrate him, but this kind of assertion is logical nonsense added on to really bad exegesis of 1 Corinthians 8 and 6. That's the end of that section, unless there's something else in there that you want to, to discuss. I think we ought to recognize that there's been, you know, now 1,400 years of the brightest minds in Christianity working on trying to make logical and coherent sense of the Trinity. And uh, I've at least concluded that it's a miserable failure. And I think it shows the deep problem in the classical and creedal formulation of who and what God is. However, if there's a requirement that human beings have to be able to understand who and what God is to be exalted or saved, then nobody will be exalted or saved because human beings just don't have that cognitive capacity. It's beyond us. 
But what is life eternal is to know God. And the, this is from John 17 and 3. But the knowledge that's required isn't knowledge about God. Not being able to define God accurately as a trinity, as Cardinal Ratzinger, later the Pope, would asserts. The kind of knowledge at issue is actually, and, and the verb there is, is ginosko. It's a form of interpersonal knowledge. It requires me to know the Father as the personal divine being and with whom I'm in relationship and what that relationship entails. And all persons, let, let me say this, all persons are kind of mysteries. My wife is a mystery to me. I know her intimately. We can finish each other's sentences, and yet she constantly surprises me. And all persons are mysteries in this sense. And this is what Martin Buber's theory of relationships mostly was about, and also, you know, of Levinas. And that is that whenever we encounter another person, there's always this extra, this mystery that's beyond our ability to fully grasp cognitively or to put into words that person. We could never fully define a person in words or in a description or even in a human understanding. There's always something that is beyond our ability to do that. And the relationship with God is like that. It's beyond our ability to express, grasp, or understand. And so it may sound like I'm saying, oh, it's, you know, it's all mystical, but it isn't, unless the relationship between my wife and me or between my children and me is mystical. It's mystical in this sense. You're constantly surprising me. You're constantly delighting me. I'm constantly being aware of new facets and characteristics and new choices and surprises. And so that's the way that relationships with persons are. What's important here isn't that I'm able to define the Trinity. What's important here is that I'm open to God and what he reveals to me. So here's the reality. And I think this is really what Joseph Smith was hearing from God in the first vision. What he says is, you know, their creeds are an abomination. And why are they an abomination? He doesn't say it's because they, they make logical nonsense. He didn't say that. What he said is because their hearts are far from me, even though their lips are near to me. They're purporting to be near to me with their lips, but in reality, we don't grasp God with our lips or with our, you know, just with the noggins and, and our cognitive abilities. We grasp God only in the fullness of our being in our hearts in an exchange of interpersonal relationships. Now, I've written a lot about that in other books, and, and we talked a bit about it when we went over the second volume and talked about the nature of relationships as well. But I want to make clear that I have nothing but respect for the people at Nisaya who did their best to try to grasp this in a way, because they're reaching a political compromise. And I have nothing but the greatest respect when people do their best to try to make sense of something and come out with something that a large group of people can say, yeah, maybe it's somewhat vague, but I have some idea what it's saying, and we can all agree that that's our doctrine. I could take every single one of the articles of faith and say, none of these are clear enough that I really have a clue what they're saying. And yet, Joseph Smith said, this is our doctrine. And so at some point, when we come up with these verbal formulations, they're all inadequate, but they're the best we can do. And so I think we ought to have respect for people who do the best they can do. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.